This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Having a chipmunk come up, sniff your finger cautiously, and then grab a treat and run off is, is magical. I won't lie, it's, it's a remarkable experience. But the consequence of that single moment of joy for a person can lead to devastating impacts to ecosystems, communities, and even those individual animals. Be it for a close-up experience, because of a perception of hunger and need, or even just the incidental feeding from having outdoor pet food, overfilled bird feeders, or other attractants. Most of the folks who end up feeding wildlife are not doing so because they want to cause any harm. In fact, it's, it's often because of the goodness in their hearts. And this episode is not about blaming or shaming anyone, because that, it, it just doesn't work. What this episode is about is understanding the complexity of nature and animal behavior and the role, often negative, humans end up playing. Just look at the black bears in British Columbia if you need an example. Between unsecured trash, other attractants, and the occasional person intentionally feeding, these bears get labeled as food conditioned and they're killed. Hundreds of them every year are killed by conservation authorities because of feeding. In numerous instances of coyotes inappropriately interacting with people, we can often identify feeding as a significant cause for that. And even with little chipmunks and squirrels, as you'll hear later in this interview, feeding can end up wreaking havoc in an ecosystem or causing behavior of chipmunks and squirrels that the public views as aggressive or bold. To go in-depth on feeding, from the causes to the impact to solutions, I reached out to Dr. Sarah Dubois, Chief Scientific Officer of the BCSPCA, who is also a professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Dubois has an impressive background on the subjects of wildlife, ethics, humane treatment of animals in numerous sectors, and of course, the impact of feeding wildlife. Let's dive in. I think one of the things that we should start on is I was uh, pulling up some of the the uh, work you've done on the issue of feeding wildlife, and it kept coming up and kept coming up. And it seems you've had a busy uh, career in terms of how people interact with wildlife and a ton of studies on it. Uh, maybe just as a quick overview, why was this an area of interest to you as you went through this this impressive uh, academic and now uh, scientific career? So my start in animal welfare was really volunteering at a wildlife rehabilitation center. It happened to be for the BCSPCA when I was undergrad mm -hmm. uh, at Wild Ark. And I had actually seen animals come in as a result of injury or malnutrition from feeding. And of course, bird feeding is very, very popular. And you see people at the parks who are feeding ducks and geese with bread. And, and you never really thought too much of it as a kid. It was actually this activity that your parents took you to do to enjoy and appreciate wildlife. And over time, as I learned more through my biology studies, of course, I learned about how it, the impacts of nutrition have on the, their general health, their welfare, just their stress levels. But then we started to also hear more and more. Uh, I think the pendulum swung a little too far 
in that people started approaching animals that maybe were a little dangerous. So people would get bit and people would have, you know, some type of negative conflict interaction. And often that animal would then be identified as needing to be removed because it's aggressive. And so over time, these variety of experiences through work and school and personal interactions, it was pretty obvious that feeding wildlife had negative consequences that not a lot of people were really considering. And then I saw it in tourism. And so it was this idea of actually interacting with species that you never got to see at home. And it was a big business in, in a number of countries where they would bring you into a space and actually give you food to give to these animals. And, you know, again, the public safety issues when you talk about primates or about marine mammals, but um, even, even with birds, you know, it was um, really being done to exploit this kind of profit of um, making tourists feel that they are helping these animals and being charitable to mm-hmm. wildlife. But at the same time, when you leave, you know, there's, there could be some real problems. And so, yeah, it, it just out of a lived experience, let's say that wildlife feeding has really come up a lot in my research. And it, it it is fascinating how it's it's a worldwide phenomenon too, and it's it's hard to remember that sometimes. One of the early stories I heard about wildlife feeding and unintended consequences was um, off the coast. Uh, someone had been taking people out to feed sharks, scuba diving, and that's a very popular thing. We've all seen it on TV, where you sit there with a fish in your hand, and a shark comes along and grabs it. And then later on, what started happening is sharks were biting people and they couldn't figure out why until someone said, hold on, in this exact location for the last five years, tour or like touring operations have brought people here to feed the sharks and the sharks are going, okay, where's my food? When you do this and stick their hand out, that means food. So they go and take the food. And because it's such a seasonal thing, tourism, is that they bring them for only those couple months and they feed them. And so the sharks are asking, well, what about the rest of the year? I, I'm expecting some type yeah. of reward, right, for approaching people. And so that happens with a lot of different species. And that's why we have seen, I think people used to be afraid of some of these species. And so there was other types of negative interactions. But now, as I said, the pendulum swung where people really want to get out in nature and experience wildlife in a way that is, you know, intimate and they can take a photo of it and show their friends. And so it's getting a bit dangerous. Yeah, I remember the bear selfie phenomenon a few years ago uh, and having to write about that. It's like, yeah, if you see a bear, don't turn your back to take a picture with the bear in the background. Just like I, 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 it astounded me that I had to spend an hour writing that article, but here we are. Well, there's even, it's not an urban myth, but there was even a circumstance where uh, an international family came and visited one of the national parks in British Columbia, um, British Columbia in um, Alberta, and actually put honey on their kids' hands oh my God. and sat their kid in a field. Oh, no. Hoping to take a photo. So again, maybe it's Disney, maybe it's movies or other nature specials that we are showing off to the rest of the world that, you know, our, our wildlife should, should be enjoyed and appreciated. Come see it. But, yeah. uh, there has to be some, some uh, proper messaging here. Uh, I, was, I was debating how to organize some of these next questions because I want to talk about some of the various circumstances as well as sort of the, the science behind what comes next. But I thought maybe the uh, to keep the, the listeners into this, talk about some of the individual things we see. So for me, 
the the big one uh, here in Hamilton is people feeding squirrels and chipmunks. And we've got the beautiful Royal Botanical Gardens uh, right next door in uh, Burlington. And I'd go there with my little brother, who's a bird photographer and, and loves the area because it's a nice marsh. So there's tons of birds and wildlife. And every time we would see people feeding uh, dollar store seed to chipmunks, big bags of bread. And um, two, two comments on that. One, it's not fun for me to go anymore because I would try and comment to people. And I was very careful how I said it because I'm a big white guy and I know all of this, but, you know, very ca casually and trying to be like, hey, just so you know, that's actually against the law and it can cause problems. And the other thing is RBG did a study and found out, and I'm going to butcher it, but effectively an invasive plant species was getting stronger in a protected marshland because people were feeding the chipmunks who then weren't eating the plants that they normally would. And it's, it's just one of those little ones of how would you possibly know that unless someone told you, uh, but we need to know that. So how do we, I guess, one is like, is there a way to measure that easily or is it a very in-depth process to understand the, the potential widespread consequences in an ecosystem from something as simply as that family experience that people are looking for? Yeah, I think it is quite complicated. As you said, there are ecological impacts that aren't seen in the moment. And so unless someone sees something immediately, so the animal chokes on the peanut or something like that, they're not going to associate it with being a negative experience. And yeah. so they also think perhaps this is limited that, oh, it's only a little bit of its diet. You know, it's only me and a couple other people might do this today, not knowing a hundred other people might come to that park with, with bags of food. And so even in places where there are nature reserves, I've seen them try to mitigate the um, intentional feeding with actually providing proper food. And so there have been some attempts at strategies of saying, okay, well, people are going to come and show up and feed anyways. So maybe we give them yeah. a bag of the proper food. So at least they don't bring bread. They don't bring the things that are going to make these animals sick, but it still leads to these animals uh, acting quite aggressive or very mm -hmm. forceful in demanding their food now because there's this behavioral association. So there are perhaps they've reduced the animal health impacts, but now they've increased the behavioral um, problems. So there's not a lot of good scenarios of opportunistic feeding that actually benefit animals. And that was one of the things that we looked at in our studies, like, are there ever times when feeding wildlife is appropriate uh, and acceptable? And there are different types of wildlife feeding. And so we have to kind of categorize them and then identify which ones are actually have the negative consequences and why. But it's hard to get that messaging across. Sure, we can publish that in a scientific journal, but only a, a few other scientists are going to read that. And so to get the messaging yeah. across, you know, we see in, in many areas signage that says don't feed the wildlife. A dead bear is a fed bear is a dead bear. You know, there's that messaging has been out there for decades and it, it just seems to be overlooked because, again, people think that their tiny little act that one day to make uh, their family, you know, have this experience of, of getting close to wildlife is, is not as negative in the big picture as uh you know they think absolutely and it's funny just it's talking about the uh it's only a little bit thing uh quick anecdote with leslie sampson from coyote watch canada we were at a park in southern ontario uh checking out the feeding issue that we thought was really responsible for some coyote stuff and leslie was leaning against a wooden railing very common in parks 
And as she was leaning there with her hand on it, a squirrel came up and bit her finger. Um, and it didn't surprise either of us because you can watch people go and leave food on these banisters. Uh, so it's the same as the shark. It's the same as coyotes, other places, same as bears, other places. If they expect food, they're going to try and get food and not understand why there isn't food. Absolutely. Um, They've been trained. We've positively reinforced the experience of being close to people. And we've done the same thing by positively reinforcing that for the experience of the feeder. Because these animals keep coming back and they seem to enjoy it. You know, we give these interpretations while the animals are, you know, happy they're they're eating this food. Um, But of course, if you gave children a bag of candy every day for breakfast, they would be happy and they would eat all of that food. Mm -hmm. But whether or not that is a good thing for them and will behaviorally be appropriate over time, you you can imagine it's got some long-term consequences. Absolutely. And again, one of the other ones, um, and this is another one I don't know how to enunciate more clearly. Uh, Again, my experience running through a park in Hamilton, people are there feeding squirrels every day. They are the fattest squirrels I've ever seen in my life. There's a lot of people there with little dogs and other dogs and kids playing. And there are ongoing reports of coyotes in the area. And in my brain, those three things add up to a headline I'm going to have to write about at some point in the next two years. And yeah, and it's, it's, I, I don't know how to express that to people because it hasn't happened yet, Mm -hmm. but it fits that exact pattern of, you know, action, action, consequence. Um, Is that something too? Like, and again, talking about the, uh, the ecological landscape, is there a way to be able to sort of, even as a researcher, as a scientist who's familiar with all of this, walk into a landscape and say, oh, if you feed, this is what's going to happen? Or is it unpredictable? There are unpredictable variables, but there are definitely patterns that you can generalize. And mm-hmm. so, yes, we could put together a predictive model of what is going to happen if you feed A, B, or C. Uh, the challenge is, again, communicating that. And even when people understand it, they do make a choice to still continue to feed. Where we've seen some hesitancy or actually, you know, kind of a a reverse effect is when there's a disease outbreak. And so Mm -hmm. when people understand that animals are being affected by a disease that humans are actually helping to transmit between the animals like at bird feeders or something like that. Like we asked people to remove their bird feeders this past spring with a salmonella outbreak in the lower mainland right. in Vancouver Island. Um, you know, it was really severe. We had evidence of all these birds that were coming into wildlife rehab centers and people were really responsive. They felt, oh my gosh, I don't want to contribute to this. Uh, I'll take my bird feeder down. And so I think that people recognize when they're contributing to a disease outbreak, that seems to have stopped the intentional feeding of, of a number of species. And so that's one piece of it. Um, I don't know how it can, can be used because, of course, not all circumstances are going to lead to disease. But one of the messages we have seen also be effective is we had a circumstance um, down near Granville Island. And a lot of people were feeding gulls and crows and pigeons and it was very problematic it's like a public square space and you know lots of feces and um, just some really negative things happening down there and so the business owners were like look we put up signs that said please don't feed the birds you know it's illegal all the all the messaging that um, should catch the general public but again 
a few fries from your lunch that day. You're not going to think too much about it because it's it's just a one-time thing, but not knowing how many people are coming back to you that every day. So the message that we had said is they asked us, is this a cruelty issue? Is this causing animal cruelty? And I said, mm-hmm. you know, this could be seen as indirect animal cruelty. This is not intentional. This is not abuse. This is not neglect. But actually, it does lead to poor welfare outcomes, and it is an intentional act um, to give the uh, food, of course. So I said, you know, this is an indirect form of animal cruelty. And they actually, and they said, can we quote you on that? And I said, sure. And they put up a sign that actually said the BCSPCA says, you know, feeding these birds is indirect animal cruelty. And that caught people's attention. And so I think that was some new language that people hadn't associated previously to their actions. And we got lots of questions about it, you know, and um, I think it really stirred up a good conversation. And we've since had other um, business owners and and other parks ask us, can we use that language? Uh, Because again, they're frustrated and they've tried everything they can to reduce feeding in their areas. So that is one perhaps concept around the language. It, you know, it seems pretty extreme, but the reality is what we've done to date hasn't really worked in terms of public messaging. And that's interesting. The, given the number of people who are working on this issue, when we actually consider that, you know, pretty much every animal control agency, every humane society across the country, advocacy organizations, parks, boards, everybody is all saying, hey, just, just don't do it. And again, uh, talking about RBG, I'm just going to keep going back to that uh, because I know it. But on the Google Maps and on local tourism things, it's great place to go feed the birds. Great place to go touch or get pictures with the chipmunks. Because, and people are enthused. They are looking for that experience. Uh, and as you said, I, th- I do really believe it's, well, I did this with my family as a child. So I want to do it with my kids and give them that experience mm-hmm. too. And what they need is the same experience I had as a kid which was at a dockside restaurant with my dad at around six, one of my early memories. And he told me to throw the, uh, the lemon wedge on my drink to the birds. And I tried to throw it and got stuck on my thumb. And a Canada goose came up and just took it off my thumb. They don't have teeth, but as a six-year-old, oh. that was a fucking bird shark. And it was going to carry me away. <laughs> uh, everyone else thought it was hilarious. Yeah. But I have not fed wildlife since then. Of course then. not. And I've, seen, uh, I've heard and, and even seen, you know, get children get nipped. And I, I think, it, yes, absolutely, that's going to be traumatizing. But then that instantly switches to the parents, you know, kind of getting angry at those animals. And like, oh, my gosh, these animals should yeah. be culled. That is a dangerous animal. And so that's, we, we've trained these animals to do that. So that's not the response either. I think it is incumbent upon parks and organizations um, that do have a known feeding issue, they should be stepping up their messaging and enforcement. You know, I I know that um, nobody likes a heavy hand, but there is consistently certain people that do this. Uh, We see it here. um, uh, We have a pigeon issue at some SkyTrain stations and that has caused problems with actually the tracks being stopped. Um, as the trains come by because the birds are in the way, but there are intentional feeders who come every day with bags of feed. And so these are the same people that are coming back every day. And so these usual suspects need to be addressed, um, you know, in in a big way. And and, um, I think that enforcement is is part of that because education works, um, you know, to to the novel person. But when you're reinforcing this behavior, 
as an organization, you know, you need to rethink that. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And um, the regular feeding is is also interesting because I think we have to consider if there's a compulsion behind it. Uh, and this is something we heard at a Living with Wildlife conference that we hosted uh, at some point in the past from someone whose name I forget, uh, but I will look it up and see if I can find it in post uh, and include it with the, the the episode notes. But they were a researcher in Winnipeg. You might have been at, no, I don't think you, this was in Toronto. I don't think you were at that one. But a uh, researcher from Winnipeg who was tracking deer in the city and there was mm-hmm. someone feeding them and the deer were crossing the road and the neighbor next door was like, I'm going to hunt them. I'm going to shoot them if they come on my property. And when this researcher addressed this individual, it wasn't, I want to, it was, I must. Mm-hmm. Um, and this fear that if they don't, something bad will happen, which is a deeply rooted anxiety. Um, yeah. Is there any knowledge on that type of the the equation at this point? So I, I haven't looked at that literature, but I would assume it would be in the psychology literature and it would also um, kind of, kind of, parallel with the hoarding literature that we see that people Mm. feel like they must take in these animals, that there is no limit. They must continue to help these animals and they can't say no. So like you said, there's an anxiety piece of it Mm -hmm. um, that they feel like no one else will help these animals. These animals are in danger and at risk if if I don't do it. And obviously we know that that um, is not true and but that's that person's um, version of the truth and yes. so that would have to be addressed i think from um you know a very uh, respectful you know counseling type of <laughs> a situation um but i don't know many social workers who are trained in, in that area but yes i think that that the enforcement's not going to work for those kinds of people we see that with hoarding that if you take all the animals away they're just going to go get more animals if they don't get support and help through that so I would, I would think similar circumstances would happen for for feeders who feel this impulsion mm-hmm. um that's not rational to actually continue to feed these animals well, and that's too when you can then look at it. I mean, I think the folks who are going to be dealing with that are likely going to be, you know, park managers and municipalities or bylaw departments. But that's when I do think you have to start looking at it as a, uh, a whole health issue as opposed to a wildlife feeding issue too, right? Wildlife feeding is almost a symptom of it at that point. Um, and the other one I wanted to touch on, and this I think is something that you may have uh, some experience with, is diversionary feeding that's not being done scientifically. So diversionary mm-hmm. feeding... Uh, I have heard about, I think typically with bears and other large mammals, mm-hmm. and it's you, you provide some food in one area because there's, there happened to be a shortage that year, but it tends to be very carefully done uh, with a lot of forethought and precautions. But there's also people who try and do that on their own. Another Hamilton example, mm-hmm. someone leaving dog food for coyotes so the coyotes won't come down to where people are and get dogs. Yes. Yeah, I've heard of a number of circumstances. So researchers would call this supplementary feeding, and it would be done with understanding the population and why the um, there's a need, right? So maybe there's a really harsh winter, maybe there was a forest fire, there was some change in the ecosystem that uh, left these animals without food that was through no fault of their own. Um, maybe there was a disease outbreak, so chronic wasting disease. We've seen some supplementary feeding studies um, in, in uh, cervids. But when it comes to individuals doing this without the training, and you know, we, we know it's not being regulated, it's not being controlled in any way that could um, benefit these animals, and again, just creates a dependency. And so we've seen it with deer and in places um, 
you know, like you said, with, with bears or with coyotes, with large animals, unfortunately, um, some of these animals are quite um, potentially dangerous if they get habituated. And so that's the challenge is um, that's where, again, bylaws, uh, provincial laws against feeding really have to be enforced uh, at that point, because we, we know that people again, feel this sense of trying to help animals. And this is how it grew. I don't know if you remember the story of the Christina Lake bear dude, but he started helping uh, what he thought was an orphan bear. And over time, he accumulated over 30 bears on his property that he was feeding um, dog food. And he was known as the bear dude in town. And um, yeah, you know, I have that up. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, I do have it up. Yeah. So he, you know, was a gentleman who really wanted to just help these animals um, and felt that, um, you know, without him and his supplemental feeding of these animals, he knew them. He, the moms would come back every year with their babies. You know, he felt that they were part of his family and that he, if he didn't do this, these animals would die. And he was keeping them out of the town site where there was any conflicts because they were all congregating on his large property. So, um, you know, unfortunately that did not end well, um, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And so it, it never really does <laughs> for these individuals who are trying to help, um, but just might need uh, some support to stop that process. Yeah. And in the abstract, so you have a paper on this local attitudes towards payer management after legal feeding and problem bear activity. Um, and I had that up on my screen, but I didn't connect the Chris, uh, Christina Lake to it. Uh, and in the abstract, there's the statement, most locals were aware of the years of feeding, but did not report it, evidently failing to see it as a serious form of harm, even after many bears had been killed. Yeah. Uh, is this some kind of wicked cognitive distortion or uh, is it some kind of dissonance? What's What do you think is going on I there? I think people felt um, a bit sorry for the individual who was doing this. They didn't want the bears to be harmed in any way. They were a bit protecting him. Um, and, you know, I, I did a survey, uh, you know, I interviewed people, I went up there, I talked to the gentleman himself who was um, feeding these bears and just to try to understand the bigger picture of what was happening. And there was no yeah. ill will there and nobody um, wanted to harm these animals. In fact, they wanted to protect them and they thought that if they were up on his property outside the town site, that might reduce conflict in town because some of the bears were getting into cottages, seasonal cottages, and some of the seasonal cottages were um, uh, owned by people from the city who would come up and their tolerance for bears was a lot less. And so they would be the ones that anytime they saw a bear, they would call the conservation officer. I don't want this bear on my property, that kind of thing. So the locals who were there year round thought, well, actually these bears are probably safer up there um, if they don't come down into the seasonal property. So, um, I'm, I'm sure they knew it was wrong, but there hadn't been, you know, a, a lot of problems until there was one big problem. That tends to be the way life works, I think, though, too, uh, especially in these situations. And it's unfortunate because there is an internal logic to that, which works. Of If the bears are over there, they won't be over here and there won't be a problem. It, it simply makes sense. It's the same as your kids, right? It's like, okay, we'll take the iPad and go into your room and now I can be mm -hmm. in the kitchen cleaning or, you know, hey, hey, significant other, go play your video game. I'm going to, you know, do something that you're not in this room for and we're in a pandemic and that is super duper what I need right now. But we're not going to get into that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, situation and it 
it opens up this door of public perception. And this is a lot of your work, and it's it's fascinating to me, is the, the human expectations, uh, the societal expectations of wildlife, and the divides that exist. And in my work, which involves a, a significant amount of reading of comments, uh, there seems to be a growing divide of urban-rural or animal or anti-animal and less space in the middle. Mm. At least that's my perception. Is that a trend or is this the way it's always been and maybe just social media is full of We try to look at that rural-urban uh, idea because it has been reported in a lot of previous studies. But a lot of people who grew up in rural situations moved to the city. And a lot of people in the city have moved out to the rural places. So I think those lines are being blurred more and more over time. So I don't think that specific divide um, is going to show a lot of uh, the trends that we you know, are looking for. I think, like you said, there are people who are animal lovers and will do anything to protect animals. Uh, versus people who um, think animals might be dangerous. Um, you know, the, there is a divide, but it isn't clearly along the lines of gender or along um, uh, urban rural divide or even education. Uh, I think it is often lived experience and, and culture. So how your family interacted with animals can sometimes hmm. have, you know, an impact on, on your your experience um whether you know you watch grew up watching lots of nature videos and and going out into the bush you may have a very deep appreciation for wildlife and a very deep respect for those animals and therefore you don't want to get close and interact with them versus people who are very maybe naive or novel to wildlife situations um you know they don't have um as much of a a, a respect for the space and the needs of wildlife it makes sense. And there's also other divides. Then we see these generally when we're talking about welfare between uh, people who identify as female, people who identify as male, certain age groups and political affiliations. Is there a way for us to to take that kind of demographic or psychodemographic data and say, all right, we know that generally speaking, we can look at this cohort and, and again, using a, a reference, I have no idea which one of the studies I got this from, but majority female identifying uh, living in a certain area are more apt to get behind coexistence or more apt to, to be on the uh, animal welfare side. Is there a way to then use that kind of data to target the education or to, to target the messaging to try and break through some of this, this sort of invisible barrier? of uh, wildlife feeding we've been talking about? I would, I would say, yeah. So there is actually, you know, that's maybe the one good thing about social media is you can test messaging. Yes. So you can put out three different uh, messages about the same thing and see who responds to it. And you can see, you know, is there a specific demographic that responds more to messaging A versus messaging B versus messaging C? So I think that is beneficial and very worthwhile to attempt to use that. And we've done that with other campaigns, for example, we've tried to target certain sectors because yes, typically people who identify as uh, female are often um, the majority of supporters for animal rescue and animal welfare organizations and the majority of employees within our sector. Um, so that is true, um, but it doesn't mean that we can't reach outside of um, that personality or identity type. Yeah. Um, 
it's always interesting too to see how those end up getting responded to. It's uh, it can both be fun and really, 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 really frustrating. Um, but that is often the nature of that kind of testing. Uh, I had a brilliant question that just left my head. Oh, it's okay. I'll come back. I'm sure. Probably in three days at four a.m. Uh, or I'll call you and wake you up and be like, "Hey, Sarah. By the way, um, no problem." Yeah. But I think, you know, it's a, a, a good thing that people get out in nature I and mean, a good thing that, you know, people care about wild animals. We just have to kind of, again, maybe take away the pieces of their imagery of, of Disney interactions yeah. with, with animals and also take away kind of the fear-based interactions that maybe they've seen, you know, um, on television or, or heard about through social media and kind of find that, that that sweet spot in the middle. Yeah, I just wrote an article about finding the facts in news, or so how to desensationalize news, I think is how I phrased it. And I took, uh, I, I did a practice run using this method and took an article where a, a gentleman was riding his bicycle at 11 p.m. at night in a rural area and saw a coyote, um, shockingly, and uh, got freaked out and then tried riding his bike away. And the coyote, you know, made noise and may or may not have followed him. And then he screamed, and I'm, I, I, I intentionally am not trying to, to tease or make fun of this, but I have a visual in my head of someone riding their bike in the middle of the night, screaming for help as a coyote just kind of watches from a distance. <laughs> um, and what I yeah. did though, is I said, okay, take away the opinion, take away the perception, right? So he thinks that the coyote was snapping at him and barking at him. Well, no, all we know for sure is there was a coyote. It may or may not have followed him. Uh, yeah. And all of a sudden, all we know is someone was riding their bike at night. They saw a coyote. The coyote may have followed them. And instead, yeah, we yeah. ended up with a thousand word article, which involved all of these crazy adverbs that I think a thesaurus was probably used to, to pull out different versions of traumatizing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting too, looking at it from that perspective. Uh, yeah. Media sensationalization. So is a problem of some of these, uh, reports. So yes, absolutely. There are legitimate concerns where people are bit or where a uh, small animal, small dog, cat may have been taken, mm -hmm. but rarely do those media st stories ask the questions of like, was this animal being fed? Was there any unintentional attractants that were in the area? You know, what was going on? Has this ever happened before? Like they don't, they just report on that. Oh my goodness, this happened. This person was traumatized, but we don't ever look at it from the other angle. And, and it, you know, it really does, you know, end up being the leading story in the news. And that's what people remember yeah. is that, oh my God, there was a coyote that took a small dog in my neighborhood. And therefore, you know, their experience is only negative with a coyote. Yeah. And there was a great Toronto star or Toronto sun. I apologize. Example of that in which they ran a vi what became a viral video of a coyote taking a dog from someone's backyard. And I think it got sent to me by five people overnight. I looked at it, took about three seconds and went, that's a raccoon. Uh, and I sent it to a couple of other people who all went, yeah, that's a raccoon. And then I think two days later, they updated the story and the raccoon was in the backyard. The dog got let out and ran at the raccoon. So the raccoon went, all right, grabbed the dog and tried running up the fence and the owner came out. But anyway, yeah. uh, so all the people who saw that, the million people think coyotes are in the backyard stealing the dogs when yeah. in fact it was a raccoon being harassed by a dog. Yeah. Uh, taking what we know about all of this, about your, your, incredible slate of work and knowledge on this subject 
what would be the primary steps a community or municipality could take to address feeding? So I think it is quite critical to have bylaws on the record and to deal with unintentional attractants. And so the, a city's own way of managing their, their waste, whether it's compost. So we saw a really big uptick in uh, conflicts when, um, you know, the greater Vancouver area implemented curbside composting, which is an excellent initiative for many other reasons. Yes, it is. But um, they didn't issue bear-proof bins or raccoon-proof bins when they did this. And so um, that was problematic. So yes, cities have, um, you know, garbage and composting uh, programming, and that fundamentally can be structured in a way to reduce or prevent wildlife conflict. So that is should be inherent upon those municipalities and their operations. But also having bylaws for the intentional feeding, I think it's quite critical because you don't want to have problems come up later and then have no means of addressing them. And so having something very comprehensive that doesn't list species like oh you can't feed deer we've seen that in a number of municipalities that had deer issues they went in with you know one specific animal type and put that in their bylaw well it doesn't address some of the other issues right so if people have a comprehensive no feeding wildlife bylaw that we have developed a model of um, through the bcsbca model bylaw so we recognize that Backyard bird feeding is important for people um, who do want to engage with nature in a very safe way, and it can be controlled. So you can do it in a way that is seasonal only, that is um, specific to the species, that isn't going to attract rats and squirrels and other animals. So we understand that that engages citizen science and an appreciation for nature. So we have left some provisions for potentially allowing songbird or hummingbird feeding. But otherwise, there really is no other need to feed uh, wildlife under the circumstances of opportunistic feeding in, in, your, in people's backyards or at local parks. So I think there are ways to do it. Um, and then it just comes down to educating people about the existence of the bylaw, why it exists, and then uh, ensuring that there is enforcement of some of the repeat offenders. Yeah, enforcement is always one of the missing components when I look at a lot of these situations. And to be fair, uh, and I, I was having a conversation about this with someone recently, uh, at least in Ontario, uh, municipalities, and I, I think this is similar in BC, municipalities have had provincial responsibilities downloaded to them for the last 25 years, realistically. Uh, just, you know, every term, there's sort of another thing municipalities are responsible for. And especially in the more uh, urbanized areas where we are, you know, still expanding and causing changes to the ecosystem where these animals would choose to live. Um, you know, it, all of a sudden municipalities are like, what are we supposed to do? And municipalities who have the budget can hire someone and do this, but smaller towns, it can be a struggle. Absolutely. I think. And uh, we only have one municipality in greater Vancouver that has an urban wildlife coordinator position. Otherwise, yeah. you know, there's not many biologists who, who work for municipalities, small municipalities to address these issues. And so, yeah, it's something that they would have to invest in. You know, the province in British Columbia does um, regulate dangerous wildlife. And so coyotes and bears and other animals are on that list. But again, enforcement can be an issue. We have a big province. Um, mm -hmm. A lot can happen uh, without enforcement. Um, but I think the majority of the public understand that feeding bears, cougars, wolves, and coyotes is, um, you know, quite dangerous. Um, but other species, they might not recognize that they're not covered under any legislation right now. So that's often where we think that municipalities can make a big difference. 
Awesome. And how can you know, animal lovers get involved? I think that's, you know, one of the, the big questions is I'm frustrated. I'm seeing people feeding squirrels in my park. I've yelled at old people and they hit me with their canes. Uh, you know, and I, I tried, you know, knocking a kid over and being like, how do you like it when I mess with your kids? But uh, apparently all of that's mm-hmm. very unpopular. Um, so what are effective tools for, for folks who want to see change, whether it is in their local park, their community, or at a broader level? Policy yeah, so base? I think simple, you know, engagement. So we can make engagement, of course, is to move, help move forward these bylaws that can um, be really important that municipalities hear from residents that this is important to them. And to ensure that they have, you know, like in my neighborhood, we didn't have bear-proof garbage bins at our local parks or school grounds or things like that. And that was really problematic. So um, I think that that's where residents can really get involved and advocate for um, reducing conflict. But if we think back about littering, so I've always tried to say, I think we should make wildlife feeding the new littering because it became socially unacceptable and very, very few people do it compared to, you know, some time ago. And so I think that that's where we have to get to with wildlife feeding is that we need to associate it with, you know, um, a kind of a non-social norm and then it's inappropriate and whether that's rolling your eyes or, or making a comment, you know, at someone to say, yeah, there, you know, hey, there, there is a garbage over there, you know, please put your food away to make sure you don't feed it to these animals. Um, but I think, again, the motive for most of these people is that they like animals. And so if you make a comment that is not about the person, but it's about the actual act and it's like, you know, that food is going to make that animal sick, you know, then I think people might, you know, it's not just about don't do that. You can't do that. That's illegal. Um, You shouldn't be doing that. You know, that's all about the person and their actions. But if, if we kind of focus it on the harms to the animal that is going to be done, we can hopefully kind of adjust our messaging that that animal is going to be quite sick actually. Um, And so wildlife rehabbers have been trying to do that, um, you know, by showing their cases of animals that have come in with angel wing or other types of nutritional deficiencies and and problems. But I think it's, it needs to become the more norm part of don't feed wildlife is just a message that, that people haven't really, it hasn't hit home with, (laughs) you know, for some reason. So we we need a rebrand on don't feed wildlife because it hasn't worked. And when we refocus it on not the person, but on the animal, maybe we can make some improvements. That makes sense. Um, And not yelling at people, I have learned personally, uh, again. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't often go well. (laughs) I've also experienced that. Um, and, um, yeah, no one likes to be told they're doing something wrong when they feel as they're entitled to do something. But I think if more people know about the harms, so if we can say that that's going to make that animal ill, that's going to, you know, be a problem that, you know, there's this whole phenomenon during the pandemic of people building these cute little picnic Mm. tables for squirrels, you know, I get it. It's really cute. But no one's having a conversation and saying, actually, you know, how much of a squirrel's diet should be peanuts? <laughs> you know, like, or, hey, flip it and just say, hey, did you know squirrels can carry, you know, ticks or mites? Or like, just like go on to say, like, here's, here's a risk that why you don't want to attract squirrels on a regular basis to your backyard. 
To learn more about the work of Dr. Dubois and the BC SPCA, visit spca.bc.ca. For more information specifically about wildlife feeding, check the links in the show notes for this week's episode. I want to thank Dr. Dubois for sharing her incredible experience and insights with us. Wildlife feeding is an issue that has such far-ranging, tragic consequences, and I truly believe that by talking more about it and sharing this kind of information and dialogue, we can make a real impact. I also want to thank all of you for joining. Remember to follow me on Instagram, at Howie Michael, and on Facebook at the Defender Radio Podcast. And why not give the show a quick review? You can do that on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or right on the Defender Radio Facebook page. It helps other people find the show and spread these messages even further. If we can get enough, I'll start reading some of the highlights from those reviews in episodes. I've also got a few bonus episodes you can expect in the next few weeks, so make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to get notified as soon as they're available. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>